0: going to do review. So I have some slides that I'll go over, and I have a couple problems that I'm happy to go over, but if there's things that you want to discuss as a class, I'll try to do that too. So does anybody have any questions or um, areas they want me to focus on today? Okay, well, then I will do what I prepared, which is to go through Chapter 13 and through 16. That's what will be covered on the midterm. That midterm is Monday. So, like all the other midterms, um, you're allowed a note card. Uh, unlike the other midterms, this one will require some numeric answers, where you'll need to know some specific numerical values. Okay, so you might consider the various quantities where we needed to know certain numbers. Right. We you're expected to know the density of water, the density of air, and atmospheric pressure, for example. So if you don't know those off the top of your head, then you might want to put those on your note card. Those are the three that I'm pointing out, okay. right? I still expect you to know that G is 9.8 meters per second yeah. squared. Right? There's other ones, but I'm, these are sort of the things that are new. That I'm expecting you to know. It's right up there. It's in the red. Right, so what's the density of water? Yeah, it's one gram per centimeter cubed, or if you want to do it in kilograms and meters, it's 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed. Okay. Right, air? Oh, that's the speed of sound in air. What's the density of air? What's that? Uh, that's the pressure. But what is the density? How much does air weigh per given volume? Or how much mass is there per given volume? It's about one kilogram per meter cubed. That's a, that's a round number. But if you, if you remember that number, that's fine. I think it's closer to 1.3. We'll use one kilogram per meter cubed. And what's atmospheric pressure? It's more like one point something. Yeah, atmospheric pressure is. Uh, yeah, in pascals. It's one hundred one point three kilopascals. So the Pascal is the SI unit. So that's, that's the uh, form that's going to be the most useful for you. So We generally do things with SI units. Okay, so Monday we'll have the midterm. Um, I will give the midterm back on Wednesday. So you'll have a chance to use that to study for the final exam. So Wednesday I'll get the midterm back, and then I plan on covering Chapter 1 through 8 on Wednesday. Um, I don't think we'll have time to do a useful review on 1 through 12, um, I would like to do that. If I did that, then we would have reviewed everything in the entire class, Um, but I don't think I'll have time to do much um, if I do all 12 chapters. So I'll just focus on 1 through 8. Those are the things that were covered in the first two midterms, things that are the oldest. Um, So we'll review that. If you have questions on chapter 1 through 8, if you email me, I'll try to incorporate them into the lecture. Um, You can also ask at the beginning of lecture, but obviously I don't have as much time to prepare slides and such Um, if you do that. So we'll review on Wednesday, you'll get your test back, and then that's the last class. Our final exam is almost a week later on Tuesday the 16th. It's here at 1215, and you'll be allowed a full notebook sheet of paper, so an eight and a half by 11 inch sheet of paper. Uh, It has to be handwritten notes. I don't want photocopies or typed up, so handwritten. Um, If you want to just bring your four note cards, you can do that as well. Yeah, front and back, that's fine. Right, And your calculator, and it's it'll be similar to the midterms. I'll uh, I'll post the final from the last time I taught this course, so you have a practice final to go over. OK, so any any questions on what's going on the rest of the semester? Tim? What about the uh, homework Because I know that like, we have credit Yeah, course uh, course. I believe the ho- last homework, um, I b- I'll have to check. It's due on Sunday. I believe after Sunday you can no longer get partial credit for doing old ones. I'll have to check that. Let me check that. Um, but I would say if you have old homework that you want to work on and you want to get credit for it, I'd plan on doing it before Sunday. I wanted to put a cutoff date so that I can figure out your scores, your grades. Uh, after so by Wednesday you should know what your grade is going into the final. And if, if you can go back and change homework scores, then, then I, there's no way for me to figure out what your grade would be. So plan on having all your homework done by, um, by the date that this last homework is due. Any other questions? Yes, the final will be right here. OK, so chapter 13 is the first chapter that will be on this final. That is simple harmonic motion. And really, there's only a handful of equations from this this chapter. And they all have this term omega in them. Really, that's the key to doing any problem that has simple harmonic motion in it. So simple harmonic motion is what you get when an object is displaced from equilibrium and it oscillates around that equilibrium position. So we have a particular form for its displacement. And that form is, uh, is what gives it the name simple harmonic motion. It has to be uh, a form that is periodic. So sines or cosines are periodic. And if it's simple harmonic motion, then the form is exactly that of a, a sine or cosine wave. So we say that there's some amplitude to the motion, some angular frequency, and some phase. So let me say this is t equals 0. Let me plot a graph where I've got some displacement measured in meters. It's a function of time. And let me label these time units in units of pi. For simplicity. We'll see why that's going to make this simpler. Um, let's figure out what the amplitude, what omega, the angular frequency, and what phi are for this graph if I write it as x of t is equal to x naught uh, times cosine omega t plus phi. So that should be the form for something in simple harmonic motion. That's what I have here. I guess I'm calling the amplitude A there and the amplitude X not here, but um, it's the same form. Let me see if I can identify from this graph what each of these terms is going to be. What's the amplitude? It's two. Amplitude is, well, the amplitude is the maximum value that it achieves in its uh, displacement from equilibrium. And we generally talk about the amplitude being a positive number. So it can go up to positive 2 or it can go down to negative 2. So we say the amplitude is 2. Chris? OK. What is the angular frequency? Can we tell that from the graph? Um, it's not obvious, or it may not be obvious. So rather than just let me, rather than just saying yes or no, let me uh, explain a little bit more about omega. How can we relate omega to say period? Period is how long it takes an oscillation to go through one full cycle. What's the relationship between omega and capital T, the period? Okay. So yeah, period. Is 2 pi over omega. It's useful to note that omega is going to have units of radians per second. 2 pi has units of radians, so that will give me some time in seconds. And the, what's the period of this oscillation? Yeah, it's 2 pi, and I meant to put that in seconds. Okay, so if I set that equal to 2 pi seconds, then what is omega? In this graph, omega is one radian per second. Uh, what would the graph look like if omega were higher than that? What would change? Yeah, it would be compressed. Right? So I'd have a compressed graph like that, faster oscillation. Uh, what if omega were lower? So the opposite of compressed. would be stretched out so in this case, omega is one radian per second. How about phi? How can I figure out what phi is? It's the initial phase. So the phase, when t equals zero, what is the initial phase? No. The initial value of the function is zero. The function starts out at zero. Right, So if I had a phase of 0 and time was 0, the argument of this cosine would be 0. What's cosine of 0? It's 1. It's 1, and that would say the, the function should equal x naught. It should be at a maximum if that were the case. So what I can do is I can say um, the position at 0, if I just plug in time to equal 0, is equal to 2 meters, times cosine of one radian per second times zero seconds plug in zero plus phi I just plug in my values at time zero I know the function should equal zero so I can say zero equals two meters times cosine of phi so I need cosine of phi to equal zero Right, so phi is either, I can write this in degrees or I can write it in radians. Let me write it in radians, I guess, since I'm It's either minus pi over 2 or plus pi over 2. Right, both of those will give me a value of 0 when I take the cosine of it. How do I know whether it's plus or minus? Any thoughts? Uh, both. The difference is whether it's, there's two points where it can start at zero, but be going in different directions. Right? So I can say, um, as time increases, my function should be getting larger. Right. And if, if phi is equal to plus pi over 2, might be useful for me to note that this is what cosine looks like. Here's pi, here's pi over 2, here's minus pi over 2. If I start at minus pi over 2 and then I increase the argument, it gets bigger. Whereas if I start at plus pi over 2 and I increase the argument, it gets smaller. So evidently, phi has to be minus pi over 2. So that's what we mean by initial phase. It's really just uh, where on the cosine curve... Is my function starting at time zero, and it's starting back here at minus pi over two? Austin? Yeah, it's just a shift. Okay. So, if understanding the, this curve, so this always is a, is a shift, right? Because changing the value here is equivalent to starting at a different time. you understand this graph for position versus time then you can say something about the velocity versus time or the acceleration versus time because they're related to position by time derivatives right so that the velocity is the time derivative of displacement so taking the derivative of this we just get a minus omega and the cosine turns to a sine so if I were to give you a function let's say this function, and I would say, what is the velocity, what is the maximum velocity of this oscillator? Or What is the velocity at time t equals one second? And that's a worthwhile question to ask. Given this function, what is the velocity at one second? How could I find that? Let's start with what I know. I have this picture, and I can turn that picture into an equation. So I can write everything I know um, in the form of an expression for the displacement. And there it is. If I know how something's, if I know its position as a function of time, I can also infer its velocity. So the velocity is the derivative of that. So when I take the derivative, I have this one radian per second coming out. The derivative of the cosine is minus sine. So there's a minus sine that comes out as well. And there's the velocity as a function of time. So if you're asked, what is the velocity at one second? I can just plug in one second into this expression. And say, the velocity at one second is two meters per second times some value that's going to be less than one. So you can plug in those numbers into your calculator and you can work out what the velocity is. Likewise, I could ask you about the acceleration. But in order to say anything about the motion, you need to know what omega is. Omega relates how fast the thing is oscillating, or tells you how fast the thing is oscillating, and that's important because it's a property of the motion it can tell us the period, and it can tell us the frequency. And it's also important um, because it's a function of, if we we imagine this is a mass on a spring, which is one type of object that undergoes simple harmonic motion, um, it tells us about the spring constant and the amount of mass. So if we can infer omega from the motion, we can say something about how stiff the spring is how strongly this thing is being pulled back towards equilibrium or vice versa if we know something about how strongly it's being pulled towards equilibrium we can figure out omega we can discuss the properties of the motion okay so let's do that um, this is an example problem from I uh, i don't know whether it's a previous midterm or a previous final but this is an actual problem from one of my tests Uh huh. So I was asking for all the parameters: x, naught, omega, and phi. Yes. So we were just, we were just taking what was written on the graph and turning it into mathematical form. Okay. So this is one of my all-time favorite physics problems. Um you see that? Yes. So there's different ways to represent that graph. Cosine of some number minus pi over 2 is the same thing as sine of the number. So um, on the slide I had it written in cosine form, so that's the way I wrote it. But you could express it in different ways. Okay, so uh, let's consider this. Let's consider the Earth. And let's say you drilled a hole all the way through the Earth. Right, so you come out on the other side. And then you ask, what happens if you jump into that hole? What happens? You fall down at first. How far can you fall down? Yeah, halfway. What happens when you get halfway down? There's no longer a force pulling you down. There's no longer a down, right? You're in the middle. Um, But you're moving pretty fast through this hole. So are you going to stop when you get there? No. Newton's first law tells us we're going to keep moving. There's no force on us, so we're going to keep moving, and we're going to overshoot. And what's going to happen now is now we're falling up, right? And what's gravity going to do is we're falling up. It's going to slow us down. And where are we going to stop? Assuming there's no air resistance or drag. We're right back at the surface on the other side, right? And if we're clever, there's something there we can grab onto. And if we miss come back to where we started. So you can imagine now that you're oscillating back and forth. And we can ask, how long does it take to get through the Earth if you could do this? All right. So that's basically the question. Um, you can read that if you want, but it's basically what I just said. So we know the mass of the Earth. That's a, a quantity we can look up. We know the radius as well. And we know the universal gravitational constant, G. So From just those things, we should be able to figure out um, eventually how long it takes us to go through the Earth. Okay, so the first part is to figure out the gravitational force acting on the capsule when it's a distance X away from the center of the Earth. Okay, so we're not all the way at the surface, but let's say we've fallen in and we're closer to the center of the Earth than at the surface, and we're a distance X away. What is the gravitational force acting on us? Is really chapter twelve when we talked about gravity. Um, does anybody remember the name of a theorem that the shell theorem tells us about the gravitational force we feel when we're inside of a mass distribution? Um, do you remember what the shell theorem says? I don't have to point it, Peter. Anyone? That's right. And the amount of gravity that you feel is that due to the mass that's closer to the center than you are. So it's within a radius X. All this mass that's outside of X doesn't contribute to the gravity we feel. Um, The mass that's above us pulls us up, the mass that's below us pulls us down, and they cancel. So we only feel a net effect from the center portion of the Earth. So if the Earth were uniform, We could say that the mass, the, what do I want to call that, the, um, let's do this, let's draw a free body diagram for an object right there. It feels a force of gravity pulling it down. It's the only force it feels. That force of gravity is downward. So if x is in the positive direction, I will call that downward, make it negative. And it's g, mass of the Earth that's at a distance less than x, times the mass of the person who's falling through, divided by the distance to the center squared. The shell theorem tells me I can treat all of this mass as if it's located at a point in the center. So I need to figure out what this term is. How much does that center portion of the earth, how much mass is in that? And I can do that if I know the density of the earth. because if I know the density and I multiply it by the volume, four-thirds pi X cubed. So that's the volume of the sphere. That will give me the total mass in the sphere. And the density, density is just mass over volume. So if I take the total mass of the Earth and the total volume of the Earth, I can get the average density in terms of these quantities which I know. Right. So I can then say... Um, the mass of the earth that's closer to the center than i am is now substituting in my density these fours and threes and pies all cancel I get an expression for the amount of mass that's closer to the center of the Earth than I am. That's what I need to plug into this expression. I can simplify this a bit because the x squared in the denominator cancels two of the x's in the numerator. And I can write it like this. The gravitational force, I feel, is proportional to how far away I am from the center of the Earth. Constant of proportionality is a function of the uh, the different constants that I know. Does this form look familiar? That a force is minus some constant times the displacement. looks like spring constant. Or it looks, this looks like a spring constant. Okay, so this problem is basically I have a spring, I have a mass attached to it, and it's going to oscillate back and forth. It just so happens that it's oscillating between the two sides of the Earth. But I can treat it as a spring if this is the spring constant. Okay, so what is the gravitational force acting when it is a distance x from the center? I've solved that. Like a mass in a spring, the system oscillates, exhibiting simple harmonic motion. Write an equation for the position of the capsule as a function of time, assuming the capsule is inserted into the tunnel at t equals zero. Okay, so... Position is a function of time. We were just doing that. The general form looks like this. And here, what is the uh, what is the amplitude of this oscillation? It's the radius of the Earth. That's the amount that the capsule is swinging back and forth from the center of the Earth. What is omega? How can I get omega? For a mass and a spring, omega is the square root of k over m. This was an equation that was on the the last review slide I had. And I have an effective spring constant. So I can plug that in. You can see that there's going to be an m in the numerator and an m in the denominator. So those will cancel out. And now I have to figure out what phi is. So, if I set t equal to 0, and I ask, where am I starting from? At t equals 0, it says I start, the capsule is inserted into the tunnel. So, where is the capsule? What value of x does it have? Austin? Yeah, it's the radius of the Earth. So, at t equals 0, this expression should equal the radius of the Earth. So, at t equals 0, this term is 0. If phi is also equal to 0, cosine equals 1. That's what I want. So phi is going to be equal to 0. That's my expression for how this this capsule is going to move. Can I explain what? Well, so let's graph this. At t equals 0, cosine of 0 is 1. So the initial position is RE. And then as time increases, the argument of cosine increases. Cosine cycles from a maximum to a minimum. Minimum, the minimum of cosine is minus 1. So the position, it becomes minus RE. That's when I'm on the other side of the earth. Okay, and then it will just keep going. Taking notes, the solution is also included in the lecture notes. Yes? Um, well, the phase is the value that I need to put in at t equals 0 to make this expression equal to its initial parameters, its initial value. And I know that its initial value should be Re, meaning at time 0, the, this little elevator or this capsule or this person Starts at the surface of the earth, one radius away from the center. So I know I should have this. And what that means is cosine, so cosine of phi has to equal one. Okay, when I plug in t equals zero, this gives me cosine of phi times r e. That has to equal r e, so cosine phi has to equal one. Okay, so one of the interesting questions you could ask is how fast, what's the maximum speed this will achieve? Where is it moving the fastest? the The center, okay. So since we have simple harmonic motion, we know the relationship, or we know the expression for the displacement, we can... Take the derivative of that and get the expression for velocity. I get an expression for the velocity. I'm not interested in the velocity at any given time. I'm just interested in finding what the maximum this expression can be is. What's the maximum? What's the ma- maximum that sine can be? One. Biggest it can be is 1. And since I've got a minus sign here, if, if sine equals -1 then this whole expression becomes as large as possible. So really what I want is just this right here. This is the the maximum value that the speed can be. I don't have the numbers worked out. It would be, oh, yeah. I don't have the number for that worked out. I'm curious at the moment, wondering what that would be. But I do have the number worked out for part D, which is using these specific values, calculate how long it would take to go from one side to the other. Before we do that, does anybody have any guesses? Less than an hour? hour? Okay. How many people think it would take, say, more than an hour? Less than an hour? Okay. So maybe around an hour. That's sort of where people are split. Let's, Let's figure it out. How can we figure out how long it will take? We have a velocity. Can we take that velocity times? Twice the radius, that's how far we travel and get a distance? Can we say that delta x is equal to v delta t? Uh, And solve for delta t? What's the problem with trying to do that? This particular form, saying that displacement equals velocity times time. That's only true for the average velocity. right? And this thing is not moving at a constant velocity. Right? When we jump into the hole, we're moving very slowly. When we get to the center, we're moving very fast. So we can't just take the velocity at the center and expect to use that to calculate the time. So what do we have to do? What can we relate to time? Chris? Yep. Um, I think you're leaving out a few details in how to do that. What do we have that we can use to relate to the period of oscillation? Essentially what we're trying to find is, is this. This time here, which is half of a full period. So if we have the functional form for the displacement, which of these parameters is related to the period? Omega. This is omega. And omega is 2 pi over the period. So the period is 2 pi over omega. Omega. If I want to find half the period, that's pi over omega. And I can just plug in that value and get something that I can evaluate numerically using my calculator. Because omega's in the denominator? I wrote that upside down. It works out to 42.3 minutes. So you're pretty close, Tim. Under an hour. A little under an hour. So on the one hand, it might seem like a long time to be falling. Um, On the other hand, it's a darn fast way to get across the world. Without using any external energy. The reason you don't have to use external energy is we've neglected drag. I, there's certainly some technical issues you'd face, like the molten center of the Earth. But you know, in theory, um, if this were not, say, the Earth, but a spacecraft, you could very easily imagine some mass oscillating around the center of mass of the spacecraft. And that happens. If you have, say you had a a rocket ship that was sent far away from the Earth, so it was outside the Earth's gravitational influence, and you released, say, a cup of orange juice, right, and it forms a little ball and it's floating around, you might ask, where does it go? Well, it's going to be attracted towards the center of mass of the spacecraft. The attraction is very small because there's not that much mass in the spacecraft. Gravity a very weak force, but it would be pulled there, and eventually it would pass through, and then it would oscillate back and forth, and it would just oscillate back and forth inside the cabin around the center of mass. So it's not, it's not a completely uh, unobtainable situation, but you're not going to—I I don't see this happening in our lifetime through the Earth. Any questions on that problem? It looks, when you first see it, it looks very maybe daunting because it incorporates a lot of different things and um, it may not be obvious where to start, but as soon as we recognize that it's simple harmonic motion, right, what we need to find is omega. Omega is the thing that relates everything in simple harmonic motion. So if something's oscillating, try to find omega. Once you know that, you can figure out everything else you need to know about its motion. So that was oscillations, chapter 13. Chapter 14 was fluids. We didn't spend a lot of time on this. We spent one week on it. Um, A couple of the important equations that we had were the continuity equation that told us that any mass that flows into a given volume has to equal the mass that flows out once it's in the steady state. So if you have a pipe and fluid flowing in, you have to have the same amount of fluid flowing out in the same amount of time. And so if our material is incompressible, then the density doesn't change, and we can neglect this density term and say that the A times V, the volume flow rate going in, equals the volume flow rate going out. We can use that to say, for example, in a pipe like this, where is the flow going to be the fastest? Where it's wide or where it's narrow? Where it's narrow, okay. Um, the other equation that we have that's very useful with fluids is Bernoulli's equation. Bernoulli's equation is basically conservation of energy. We use it in the same way, only it's the energy per unit volume that we care about. And so. Our terms are pressure. There's a potential energy term that looks like rho g times height. Instead of mg times height, we use the density of the fluid. So rho g times height. And then a kinetic energy term. Instead of 1 half mv squared, we have 1 half rho v squared. So when we deal with fluids, we replace the mass with the, the density when we talk about its properties per unit volume. So this term on the left-hand side is the total energy evaluated at point 0.1. On the right-hand side, we have the total energy evaluated at point 0.2. Conservation of energy tells us those have to be the same. Okay, so you can expect to see questions that look like this. Let me draw that better. If you're copying this down. Don't copy that. Imagine this is a pipe. Right? And this is uh, drawn with the usual vertical direction being uh, being pointing up. If fluid flows into this pipe, and flows out, what can I say about the speed of the fluid, the pressure of the fluid at points 1, 2, 3, and 4? Where is the speed the highest? So at 2? What about at 3? So assuming these are the same size, the continuity equation tells me if the cross-sectional area is the same at the two points, the velocities has to be the same. So V2 equals V3. Right? I could probably also say V1 equals V4, assuming those are the same cross-sectional areas. And is the fluid faster at points 2 and 3 or at points 1 and 4? Points 2 and 3. How about pressure? What point has the highest pressure? One point that has higher pressure than any other. What is different between, say, point 2 and 3? They have the same cross-sectional area. What's different? their height, right? So if I look at Bernoulli's equation, that has pressure in it. So if the pressure is higher, that means the potential or kinetic energy has to be lower, right, in order for energy to be conserved. So the points where it's moving the fastest, it's going to have the greatest kinetic energy. And if it has more kinetic energy, it's going to have less pressure, right, for the same amount of energy to be distributed among those three terms. So points two and three are not going to have as great a pressure as points one and four. Um, okay, points one and four have different heights. Right, point one is higher than point four, so the potential energy term is greater at point one than at point four. So which one has to have the greatest pressure? Point four. What about pressure at 0.3? Is it greater than or less than 0.2? Uh, what about point 0.4 and 0.2? Which one is a greater pressure? So what about 4 and 3? Which one is the greater pressure? Okay. So Yeah, so if you're paying attention and you notice noticed I already said 0.4 is the greatest pressure, it's got to be greater than these others. It has more pressure than at 0.3 because the fluid is the same height but is moving slower. It's got less kinetic energy, so it has more pressure than at 0.3. Compared to 0.1, the fluid's moving at the same speed at 0.4, but it's got less potential energy, so it has to have more of its energy and its pressure. And compared to point two, it has less potential energy and less kinetic energy. So again, it has to have greater pressure. Okay, so those two equations really govern fluid motion. So if the fluid's moving, those are the expressions that are going to be relevant. The other situation we had when we talked about fluids was things floating. So we had a new force to deal with, which was the buoyant force. And that's the uh, subject of this question. This is also from an earlier exam that I had given in a class. So it's good practice. Got two blocks of the same size that are sitting on the bottom of a lake. Uh, One is very heavy, it's made of lead, and the other one is empty. So, this is like a balloon, if you like. It's, It's got nothing inside of it. They each have some mass due to the box, and some mass, well, the lead has some mass due to the lead that's inside of it. So what we'd expect to happen is probably going to sink, right? This empty box might float. The lead box would sink. If you tie them together, chances are the lead one is going to have a stronger gravitational force pulling it down than the empty one has buoyant force pulling it up. So the whole thing is probably going to sink. And then the problem deals with what happens if you then cut this this rope holding them together. If you do that, then this Basically, this balloon here is no longer being pulled down to the bottom of the lake, it will shoot up. Okay? So, first question draw a free body diagram for each box once they come to rest on the bottom of the lake. Okay, so we have two boxes. The empty one, what forces does it have acting on it? There's three of them. Gravitation is one. tension is another I didn't hear it the buoyant force okay the buoyant force and that has to act up and we expect those to be in equilibrium this, this box is just sitting there on the bottom nothing's happening it's in equilibrium would it be greater when it's sitting on the bottom What happens if the, the tension and the weight are greater than the buoyant force? It has to accelerate down. So that's what's going to happen when you put it into the water. But once it hits the bottom, is that still going to be the case? No. It's not. It's no longer accelerating down, so they have to balance. Okay. This problem didn't actually ask me to solve for anything yet. Um, so this is the empty. Empty box. Uh, What's different for the full box, for the lead box? Uh, Does it still have weight? Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to have a larger weight, mass of the lead box. What about tension? What's different with the tension? Okay, the direction is the opposite, right, because the rope. What about the magnitude? How does the magnitude of that tension compare to that one? Oh, same. Same. It's the same. It's the same rope, therefore the same tension. Newton's third law tells me that. Uh, what about the buoyant force? Does this not have a buoyant force because it's more massive, because it's full? Smaller buoyant force? buoyant force? No buoyant force? No buoyant force because it's not floating? Okay, what is the buoyant force equal to? What is the expression for buoyant force? Think about that. It's the density of the fluid that's being displaced times the volume that's being displaced times g. So is this box displacing fluid? Yes, it is. Does that fluid have a density? Therefore, there is a buoyant force. Now, that buoyant force is not enough to make it float, but it's there. If you've ever tried to lift something that's heavy underwater, you know that it's easier to lift because buoyant force is acting up, is helping you. Okay, so there is a buoyant force. And in fact, how does that buoyant force compare to this buoyant force? It's the same. If these have the same volume, they're going to displace the same amount of fluid. They're going to have the same buoyant forces acting up. There's one more force that acts on this one. The normal, force. the normal force. right. So there has to, because I have a stronger gravitational force pulling down, I have this normal force um, that helps it balance. So it's sitting on the ground. Okay, so if the rope between them is cut, what will the initial acceleration of the empty box be as it floats towards the surface? So on my free body diagram, what does it mean? For the rope to be cut what changes tension goes to zero so let me consider the diagram of the empty block the tension goes to zero and I can say the sum of the forces and in this case I only care about the vertical forces it's going to equal mass times acceleration that's Newton's second law right that was chapter four I think anytime we have forces we draw free body diagrams we use Newton's second law Okay, so I'm gonna add up the forces. I'm gonna set them equal to mass times acceleration. I'm gonna solve for the acceleration. right, that's what I'm asked for. So um, I have an upwards buoyant force, a downwards weight. Let me divide all these terms by mass to get the acceleration. So I've got an expression for the acceleration. This is not my answer, though. If I look at the question that I was asked, I'm not told the mass of the box. That's not what I would consider a given parameter, so I can't have an answer that's in terms of m. I have to figure out what this m is, and likewise what this buoyant force is, in terms of the things that I was given. You always want to make sure that your answer is expressed in terms of quantities that you're given. So if you don't have a number at the end, if you just have a bunch of, of variables, you need to make sure that those are things that you were, you were told what they are. OK, so I don't have these. I need to plug in an expression that looks like this for the buoyant force. And I'm told this is in a lake, right, uh, into a lake. So I'm going to assume that this is water. What's the density of water? So 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed. I might state that I'm assuming it's a freshwater lake, um, but I'm going to just plug that in and use that. The volume that's displaced, how much fluid is displaced, Uh, The boxes have a volume of a half a meter cubed each. Okay, So I can just use half meter cubed as the volume of the water that gets displaced by the box. And then I know what g is. The formula for the buoyant force is rho VG. Okay, rho times V is the mass of the displaced fluid. We multiply it by G. That's the gravitational weight of the fluid that was displaced. That's the net buoyant force pushing up. Okay, so the mass of the box I'm given. This comes from here. Right, and I just divided both sides by the mass and solved for the acceleration. I had f of b over m mm-hmm. minus, this was mg over m. Okay, the box itself has a mass of one kilogram. So one kilogram box, this isn't, it's not quite like a balloon. It actually it has some mass. Hold on one second. Is a one kilogram block box of this size going to float? It depends. depends. So what? Well, it's it's one kilogram. It's it's a half a meter cubed. What is its average density? Two kilograms per meter cubed. Is that less dense than water or more dense? It's less dense than water. It will float. Okay, so just cuz it floats, it still has yeah, it still has some some mass. And I know what g is. So you can see that I had an expression here for the acceleration, but I wasn't done. If I look at what these different terms are, I can actually express all this numerically and work out the number. And I get 4390 meters per second squared. Is that a large acceleration? Yeah, so what can we reference it to? How can we tell that that's a large number? I'm sorry? What's the acceleration of a rocket? We don't know. Okay, what's, the, what's some acceleration that we know? Gravity. Right, this is much stronger, much greater acceleration than that due to gravity. Uh, so maybe something's wrong, right? We haven't really seen that very often. Usually. Things are accelerating at some fraction of their free fall acceleration of most of the problems we've done. So is that right? Um, it is. Does anybody have any idea on why this box can accelerate so much faster than that due to gravity? Christopher? Why is it that this box has such a large acceleration when it's released from rest? No, not, when we, not once we cut the string. Okay, so here's a way to see it. If I just took this box and I dropped it in the air, the force that pulls it down is gravity, right, mg. And I'd say mg equals ma, the masses would cancel out. Right? The amount of mass that's pulling it down It's the same amount of mass that needs to be accelerated but when it's underwater the force that pushes it up is not the mass of the box but it's the mass of the water that displaced it the water that it displaced is 500 times more massive than the box itself okay so the mass that's accelerating it there's 500 times more mass accelerating it than there is resisting the motion and so it turns out this is 500 times greater 500 times more than the acceleration due to gravity. Right. right, because it has a very large force accelerating it, but a very small mass, very small amount of inertia resisting that force. So it's, an, it's a situation we haven't encountered very much. Um, and so what's interesting is we could calculate, and we do, the next question is if there is no drag, drag will slow the rate of ascent of the empty box. But if we neglect it, what would be the speed of the empty box when it reaches the surface 10 meters above? Um, is this acceleration going to change as it goes higher and higher up? Yeah. Yeah. Was this acceleration, anything here, a function of how deep it was? No. no. Okay, so the acceleration actually is going to be a constant. Right. Okay, so it's constant acceleration. <laughs> If we have constant acceleration, there are some equations we can use. Um, We can say, for example, v squared minus v naught squared is 2a delta x. And we'll use that one here. We want to find the velocity at the top. The velocity initially is zero if it's released from rest. The acceleration is 4390 meters per second. That's up, so I'll call that positive. And the displacement is 10 meters, and that's also up. So their dot product is their product. Okay, so V is just the square root of this quantity. 313 meters per second. That's really fast. Right? It's probably faster than we would expect. I mean you can kind of imagine someone taking a buoy that's in the water and putting it 10 meters under the water and having it come up and it's probably not moving that fast Tim? yeah exactly there's a lot of resistance the water has a lot of drag more so than if it were just falling through the air so we really can't neglect the drag here okay and that's kinda what that calculation is showing us is that that we get an unrealistic value if we neglect the drag so First, let's calculate how high this box would shoot up. So neglecting drag, it's moving this fast at the surface. How high does it go? So here's the surface of the water. We've got a box moving at 313 meters per second. How can I figure out how high it's going to go? Yeah, so I'm going to use conservation of energy. I'm going to say the energy at one is entirely kinetic energy. The energy at point 2 at the peak of its trajectory is its potential energy when it's a height h. So setting those two things equal to each other, the kinetic energy initially equals the potential energy But I end up with the masses cancel. I know the value for G, so I can solve for the height, 4.9 kilometers. So again, it's suggesting this is probably not what really happens. Something is wrong. It could be my calculations are wrong. In this case, it's neglecting drag. It's just not an accurate assumption. The drag through waters is, is very large. Sam, did you? I never came back to your question. Okay, so that's not the case. Um, let's look at E. If the box is observed to shoot up only one meter above the surface, how much work was done by drag as the box floated up through the water? So now if we want to figure out how much drag there was, we'll use the fact that it's observed to only go up to one meter. Okay, So evidently, however much energy difference there is between one meter up and 4.9 kilometers up, that difference in energy is the amount of energy that was lost. That must have gone into the work done by non-conservative forces. So, my conservation of energy equation, the energy initial equals the energy final, is when you don't have non conservative forces, when you don't have drag or air resistance. Okay, if you do, I have to add any work done by non conservative forces. And that's always the work done by non conservative forces always is what sign? It's always negative. So, it's always going to reduce the total amount of energy, which is what I saw here. So, the work done by non conservative forces has got to be the energy final minus the energy initial. So, the final energy when it goes to a height of one meter is just mg times one meter. The initial energy. Was 1 half mv squared. I have a value for v, it's 313. All right, so I can plug in my value for m, I can plug in my value for v, and I can get the work done by non conservative forces. any what this is kilometers yeah right so if i well i'm not i'm not using this number over here i'm only dealing with the case when it goes up one meter so i plug in one meter there okay so those are the questions i wanted to go over because they dealt with things we've covered sort of earlier um Couple slides to review things we've done more recently. Although I don't have, I'm not going to go over them uh, with with detailed questions like that. Uh, superposition tells us that when we have two waves that meet, we can find the total displacement or the total pressure or whatever the wave is propagating in. We can find its effect as just the sum of the two individual things. Right, so if I draw two pulses on a string, for instance, and say they're going to collide, I should be able, you should be able to draw for me what that string will look like at the moment where the pulses meet that's done up here for two similar but opposite (coughs) sign pulses crossing we also dealt with standing waves which is what you get when a traveling wave reflects off of some interface and the sum of the forward and backwards going waves add up such that there's constructive interference at some position and destructive interference at another position. Okay, the points of destructive interference are called nodes. The points of constructive interference are called anti nodes. So they're labeled N and A on this diagram. And we get resonance, or we get these standing waves building up when the ends of a string, if they're fixed in place, they have to have nodes. If they're free, they have to have antinodes. And we can draw what the various standing wave patterns will look like. So for instance, a string that's fixed on both ends, like a guitar string, has to have a node at either end. But when you pluck it, the center can vibrate. And we'd expect there's an antinode somewhere in between those. The fundamental mode is the longest wavelength that fits on that. And so if you just draw a sin- sinusoidal uh, function that goes through zero at either end, the longest sine wave you can draw is one that has its peak in between and then goes back to zero. And that's going through half of a sine wave as it goes bet- along the string. And so we can say that the length of the string is equal to half a wavelength. We can do similar things for this, what we call the second harmonic, the third harmonic, the fourth harmonic, where we have shorter and shorter waves that have more and more nodes at points along the string. Okay, so I expect that you can draw these diagrams. If I ask you what the standing wave pattern of the fourth harmonic is for a string fixed at both ends, I expect you to be able to draw that accurately. And from this, figure out the frequency at which this will vibrate, if you know the speed of the wave in the string. Okay, so once we have this diagram, we can relate the wavelength to the physical length of the string. And how do we relate wavelength to frequency? velocity of a wave equals wavelength times frequency, so you have to know that. If you don't, put that on your note card. So That's true whether we're dealing with waves on a string or sound waves inside of a pipe. you, You did this in lab this week. You have a pipe that's open at one end, closed at the other. A closed pipe has a node. In this standing wave inside of it, and an open end has an anti node. You can draw the same kinds of diagrams. Is this well, it's written in terms of some generic length, L. If you're given a specific length, you can plug that in for L and solve for the wavelength. So in the get lab, it. So you didn't have the same. Wave say that again so in lab you had a fixed wavelength sound being produced by your speaker you adjust the length of the tube and you only got resonance when this condition is met so this is the condition for resonance right you can have other lengths you just won't have sound resonating so this is this is the wavelength that resonates and then the last thing that we discussed the last effect is called the doppler shift that's the effect where you hear the frequency of a wave change based on whether you're moving relative to the source or not and so we talk about the frequency of a wave in the reference frame of the source okay so the sound produced and heard when the source is stationary and the listener is stationary and we call that f but the sound that you actually hear can have a frequency that's shifted by that if either the listener or the source is moving. Okay? And it depends on how fast the listener or the source are moving relative to the speed of sound. So the pl- just plain V here is the speed of sound. VL is the speed of the listener. And VS is the speed of the source. Okay? and you have to f- You're responsible for figuring out the signs on this. If I tell you that the listener is moving with a certain speed towards the source, for example, you need to be able to figure out that you need a positive velocity, whereas if they're moving away from the source, there should be a negative velocity that we plug in here. Um, and the same thing for the source, or the same, the relationship is opposite, but the requirement is the same. Any time the listener and the source are getting closer together, the Doppler shift increases the frequency. If you can remember that, then you can look at this expression and you can make an argument as to why the sign needs to be positive or negative for the listener or the source. Okay? Uh, so this isn't all inclusive. There were other things we talked about. We talked about beats. Um, we talked about a few other things, but those are the main points that I wanted to go over. Um, if you understand those main points, you should do fine in the test. Um, I posted a practice exam, so go ahead and give it a try, and uh, I'll see you on Monday.